Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. We are on that last event of Jesus' earthly ministry that we have recorded in the Gospels, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Sunday, April 9th, A.D. 30. We trace back and it happened when we think it happened, it would have been on that Sunday. So again, one of those rare years where Easter Sunday was maybe, perhaps, more than likely on the actual day um, that the Lord rose from the dead. So in our introduction tonight, before we jump into the different resurrection accounts, we want to ask this question again. As we've been asking along the way with the, the crucifixion narratives and some of the other narratives in the Gospels, why are the resurrection accounts in the Gospels different? In other words, if this is the same event and these are people supposedly recording from eyewitnesses the same event, uh, why are the events recorded differently? Why does each Gospel writer offer different details and some leave out details and some have entire other stories that they, uh, that they add in there? Uh, well, number one, again, there are different human authors telling different angles. Different authors, different angles, yet one story. Okay, remember we talked about uh, if, if you're watching the crime shows, the true crime shows, and one of those dead giveaways that um, your suspects have conspired together to formulate a story is that they match exactly down to the detail and the side items they throw in there. And that begins to perk up the detective's ears and say something's fishy here about the story that these suspects have cooked up together. So rather than um, talking points and official uh, sort of bullet points, these gospel writers are seemingly offering uh, genuine eyewitness accounts of the same event, yet maybe from different angles. They emphasize different things. So some are emphasizing chronology. They want to tell the events in order as they happened, A, B, C, one, two, three. Some have a theological purpose in mind. Maybe Luke fronts something. Luke uh, has the only narrative of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and so there's something Luke wants to convey there. Luke is the only one who uh, really details the ascension, both in his gospel and in the beginning of Acts, and so there's, there's a theological purpose for Luke in including those things. The other gospel writers don't include. Uh, same for John, Matthew, and Mark. There are personal storylines. In the Gospel of John, there's a, there's a conversation between Mary Magdalene and Jesus in the garden uh, near the tomb that is not included in the other Gospels. Uh, we have in Luke, and again mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians, we'll see this later, that Jesus appeared to Peter, uh, seemingly by himself, between the appearance to the women and the appearance to the other 11. There's an appearance only to Peter, so there are uh, personal storylines that are being uh, explored there too. So how do these variations support the veracity of the resurrection? Well, again, these are not talking points. There's no official transcript. 
You know, we're getting into uh, politics season again, gearing up for 2024. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for the primary debates to begin because I, I just live for this stuff this time of year uh, and then next year. But one of the things you find when you, when you start doing the debates and they start doing the, the, the interviews with the candidates on TV is you can ask a politician a straightforward question. And more often than not, you're not going to get a straightforward answer because they have talking points they're supposed to stick to. Now, we think that's deceptive and dishonest, and there, there is some of that there, too, a lot of times. More often than not, though, they have a whole, you know, staff that they're working for that has crafted these talking points to try to keep them out of one ditch or the other. And so they might ask a straightforward question. You get kind of this right here. They're trying to tread that fine line between this side and that side, sticking to the talking points. The gospel writers are not interested in sticking to talking points. They're not interested in an official transcript of these events. They're giving what seems to be real, genuine eyewitness accounts. The minor differences point to eyewitness accounts. They're differences, not contradictions. Okay, someone comes to you and says the Gospels contradict each other. You say, no, there are differences in the accounts, but there are not contradictions in the accounts because there are varying witnesses. It seems that if you have multiple witnesses, you have multiple angles, and that's exactly what we see in the Gospels. So let's start looking at some of these um, events and the accounts of the resurrection itself. And let's begin where we kind of were Sunday morning in our narrative in Luke chapter 24, but for now, turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. I think you'll, you'll see how Luke and Matthew agree on some things and how Matthew differs on some things. If you remember from Sunday, the account we read from Luke chapter 24, we read it twice, read it for a call to worship, and then it was part of my actual sermon text. Um, Luke only includes the visit of the women to the tomb, they see the two angels, the angels tell them Jesus is risen, and they go back and tell the apostles. And then Peter runs to the tomb and sees it. And then Luke goes into the whole road to Emmaus thing. So that's Luke's account. Let's see what Matthew says here as the tomb is visited by these women, beginning in Matthew 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now, at that point, it sounds very familiar to, similar to Luke's gospel account. The women go. There's only two women listed here. Uh, Luke lists more women, probably the same group of women going, the same event. Stone is rolled away. Matthew only mentions one angel. Doesn't mean there weren't two, but Matthew focuses on the angel descending and rolling away the stone as being the same one angel that spoke the same thing we heard in Luke. Go tell his disciples that he has risen. He's not here. But we have this other detail. As you're going, verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And verse 9 says, Behold, Jesus met them. And so in this account, Jesus appears to them uh, in this account. Uh, now, this same account with minor differences, as I said, is mentioned in Mark 16, Luke 24 that we read uh, Sunday, and John 20. 
There's something interesting here, I think, in the story that, that's, that's part and parcel of the Easter story, and that is the stone being rolled away. That's mentioned in all four Gospels. It's evident in all four Gospels that that's something that needed to happen. But why did it need to happen? Well, the author correctly points out that the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. Jesus seemingly has no problem uh, appearing in locked rooms or vanishing from one place and reappearing in another after his resurrection with his glorified body. Uh, So he doesn't need the stone rolled away. Even if he is a real physical raised body, he can uh, transcend those, those laws if he wants to. So why was the stone rolled away? Not to let Jesus out, but to let witnesses in. We see Matthew focus on the display of God's glory to the guards. God wanted to make a show out of this, not in a deceptive way, but sort of as we've been going through Exodus, I keep saying, you know, God has some style in the way he does things. He likes to do this. He likes to show the guards and the temple guards and the Sanhedrin and the Roman uh, government who's boss in this whole thing. And so um, he's displaying his glory by the earthquake and the angel descending and the guards being scared and becoming like dead men, and the, the rolling away. In all of this, there's a clear visual that the resurrection had occurred. Okay, Jesus did not simply pass through the stone. The stone was rolled away, this mighty show of power and glory from heaven, so that it was evident to all that the stone had been rolled away, and now the tomb was empty. People could come and see that the tomb was empty, as they do, as the women and Peter and John all visit the tomb and see that it is indeed empty. This validates Jesus' promise. There's a clear visual sign to the stone being rolled away that says he is risen. Now, in Matthew chapter 28, there's a conspiracy uh, that emerges between the guards and the Sanhedrin. Look there in Matthew 28, uh, verse 11. While they were going, that is the women, behold, some of the guard went into the city. They told the chief priest all that had taken place. When they assembled the elders and the council, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So immediately there's a conspiracy of unbelief between the guards who saw the angel come down and roll away the stone and the Sanhedrin who do not want anything to do with people thinking that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So the guards feared for their lives, rightly so. They were given a task. History tells us that if they had failed at that task, they might have been imprisoned uh, or even put to death themselves for having failed to do the thing they were assigned to do as Roman guards watching this body. Um, The Sanhedrin feared the report of the resurrection. So no matter which way you go, the fear of man has taken over both the guards and these Jewish religious leaders that evidences itself in this unbelief. And so the Sanhedrin enter into into what can only be called bribery to keep the guards' mouths shut. And it says that they promised to vouch for them if they got any trouble for this. Tell them you fell asleep. Tell them disciples came and stole the body. And if you get in any trouble for this, will vouch for you. What's well, a fool's errand on both hands because no amount of money or conspiracy or lies 
could cover up the truth of what happened. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, the veracity and the kind of tools to prove uh, evidence for the resurrection. So no amount of money could suppress the truth, nor could these Jewish religious leaders truly protect these guards. Now, if you read between the lines here, this is probably a, a pretty empty promise on behalf of the Jewish religious leaders. If these Roman guards got in trouble with the governor, Pontius Pilate, the Jewish religious leaders are probably not going to be able to say anything to get them out of trouble. But so that they can just say what they need to say to get what they want out of the situation, to get the guards to say what they want them to say, they make this empty promise. Look, if you get in trouble, here's some money, and we'll vouch for you when it comes to it. So no amount of money, no amount of conspiracy uh, could keep the truth hidden and certainly couldn't keep these guards out of trouble. The next account we see in uh, John's gospel and Luke's gospel is uh, Peter and John racing to the tomb. Now we read Luke's gospel account on Sunday and in Luke's gospel, as the women come and tell the apostles, it's Peter who rises and runs to the tomb. Remember? In John's gospel, it is both John and Peter, and John uh, includes that small detail that John, uh, he says the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, beat Peter <laughs> to the tomb. So another one of those little, those little small details, these, these, these details in this account that point to what the author calls eyewitness reminiscence. There's little details that you throw in there that someone just concocting a story may not include. Okay, one of those being, oh, and, and I beat Peter there. That's one of those small details that John includes that gives uh, validity to the account that he's giving. These unnecessary particular details. Accounts like who beat who, where, not official, again, talking points or an official transcript. Um, you might hear historians sometimes say that smacks of authenticity I don't quite know where they get that terminology from, but that's what the gospel writers' uh, accounts do. They smack of authenticity. They taste like they're real because there's those small, minute details included in there that say this is probably an eyewitness account. How do these details in the account argue against grave robbers? So whether it's the disciples or, or just anyone coming to rob the grave, why do the details of the gospel accounts uh, argue against grave robbers. Well, number one, grave robbers would have probably taken the grave clothes. Probably expensive. Uh, you saw the, the, uh, the Roman guards casting lots over Jesus' tunic. And so in a way that we probably don't understand in our day, cloth and clothing, especially um, large pieces, were very expensive, very precious, and very valuable. And so grave robbers would have certainly probably taken the grave clothes uh, or any shrouds that might have been there in, in the tomb. The scene is orderly. In other words, when they get there, there's nothing that's been uh, disrupted except the stone has been rolled away. In fact, when they look in, the grave clothes are there as if Jesus' body has just sort of materialized out from underneath them, and uh, the, the shroud that goes on his head is there folded. The guards posted there would certainly have uh, kept off simple thieves. So if it's not, even if it's the disciples or just anyone coming to rob the tomb, you know, hence the appointment of the guards. Now, the fact that the Sanhedrin have to tell them, listen, just tell them you were asleep, sort of indicates that they were not sleeping. 
In fact, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that they would maybe have been thrown in prison, tortured, or even killed had they failed at their appointed task would have kept them awake, probably would have kept me awake. And the fact that they had to be bribed to say that they were sleeping meant that they probably were not sleeping. And so um, any grave robbers coming to the scene would have had to deal with these uh, battle-trained Roman officers, and it would not have been a simple task to roll away the stone, go in there, steal the body, uh, evade the guards, and, and all that. So there's these, these details that are thrown in there that we, we kind of just become accustomed to with the familiarity of the story, but are there for a purpose. And as straightforward as the gospel writers are about the resurrection, you'll notice there, it's, it's like a news report. This happened, this happened, this happened. There's not a lot of fluff. They don't try to you know, weave a grand story or, or go poetic on us with how they describe things. They just kind of tell us how it is. So the details that they do include, we must take them as vitally important, both to understanding the event and how to defend the veracity of the event. And all of these details, when you begin to put them together, argue against anyone stealing the body, argue against grave robbers, they argue for the truthfulness of the resurrection because of the details that we see here in the gospel accounts. The next major proof, obviously, are the actual resurrection appearances. It would have been one thing for Jesus to have supposedly risen from the dead and ascended to heaven and nobody ever saw him. You know, in, the, in, in Mormonism, um, once Joseph Smith had uncovered the golden plates that became the Book of Mormon, uh, no one ever saw the golden plates, that they were behind a veil and only Smith saw them and only Smith was able to translate. And when people said, we want to see the plates, Smith said, oh, they, they've, God came and, and took them back to heaven. You know, and, and who's to say there were even plates at all? And obviously, I don't think there were. So in the same way, Jesus doesn't just come out of the tomb and ascend to heaven, and we just have to assume that he's risen. No, he appears to all the disciples, to these women, to 500 people at once, to unbelievers like his half-brother James... And so all this begins to add up to the truthfulness of the resurrection. Number one, Jesus appears uh, to Mary Magdalene. Let's look at this story in John's Gospel, John chapter 20. John 20, uh, beginning in verse 11. John, in those first 10 verses... Uh, recounts the women coming to the tomb and um, John and Peter coming to the tomb. But it's verse 11 where Mary stands weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, verse 11, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, uh, Aramaic Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced these things to the disciples, saying, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
Back in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, is where we meet Mary Magdalene, and it is not this kind of scene. The scene in which we meet Mary Magdalene in Luke 8, 2, is when she is being uh, oppressed and possessed by seven demonic or evil spirits. And Jesus frees her from what the author calls this living nightmare. So it's interesting in John's account that he wants to focus on Mary. Now, this is not the the first time he's focused on Mary. If you remember, he comes to Mary, who anointed Jesus' feet uh, at, at their home in Bethany. And here he focuses on Mary yet again. Maybe knowing Luke's account already, John is bringing that account of her being freed from those seven demons by the Lord Jesus into this account to sort of put a bookend on this, this character, Mary Magdalene. It's interesting also that John says Mary mistook Jesus for a gardener, someone in this time uh, where there would have been multiple graves and multiple openings in the side uh, of this kind of cliff or mountainous wall where people would have been buried in this way. Uh, a gardener would have been there to tend uh, to weeds, to, to make sure the, the bushes and the trees were trimmed back, that people could have access to the graves and their loved ones. Um, she mistakes Jesus for this gardener. And you have to ask the question, why would John include that detail? Why not just say, you know, he didn't rec- she didn't recognize him? Uh, Luke did that with the, the followers on the road to Emmaus. We'll see that in a minute. Why didn't John just say that? Well, John has been alluding to Old Testament books, particularly Genesis and Exodus, throughout his whole gospel, hasn't he? Do you remember how the gospel of John starts? Somebody tell me. How does the gospel of John start? John 1, 1. Very good, Mason and everybody, everybody over here, too. <laughs> In the beginning, that, sound, that is Genesis, and, and he uses that on purpose. And John is always contrasting darkness and light and blindness and sight and death and life, all of these images uh, from creation, not to mention all the allusions to the Exodus that we see with the bread from heaven and all that stuff. Uh, I think this is probably another allusion to Genesis, namely the Garden of Eden. There are new creation themes here. We know it's, the, it's after the Sabbath. This is the first day of the week. Something new has started. Not just the dawn of a new week, but the dawn of a new creation with the dawn of this first day of the week. And so as we come from the Garden of Eden, where man failed, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where the Savior prevailed in his temptation, now we come to the Garden Tomb, where it is dawn, where it is light, and life has victory over death. God spoke light into the nothingness of creation, and now he speaks life into his son Jesus here in the garden tomb. Jesus also speaks here, and he says one word, Mary. And with that one word, a light bulb goes off. Something happens with Mary. Maybe it's that she hadn't quite, uh, in her distress and her crying, put the face with, the, with, with, with her memory. Or maybe the, the son was behind. There was any number of things that could have been happening. Maybe it was a spiritual thing, a supernatural thing, as with the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus that couldn't recognize Jesus for some reason. Something was different about him that made him maybe at first unrecognizable keeps happening in the gospel accounts whatever it was Jesus intends that when he speaks her name she recognizes who he is and it's the same Lord who spoke to her freedom and deliverance 
from those demons that she was oppressed and possessed by back in Luke 8. The same Jesus that she knelt and anointed his feet and prepared for his burial, she now meets in this garden, this dawn of a new creation, as he calls her name. Very much like he calls Adam's name. Isn't that interesting? I just, Bible just blew my own mind there. So Bible's, Bible's great, isn't it? Adam, Adam, where are you? And, and she's, that'll preach. That's, that's a different day. We'll come back to that. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus appears to the women uh, leaving the tomb. This is what we just read from Matthew chapter 28. As they were leaving the tomb, they see the empty tomb. They're going back to tell the disciples Jesus meets them on their way back to Galilee. Uh, in Luke's gospel, we have the woman going to the tomb and coming back to the disciples, but whoever Luke was interviewing about that particular aspect did not mention, oh, and, and Jesus, you know, met them on the way. Again, not a contradiction. It's just Luke doesn't include that detail that Matthew does. The women see Jesus on their way back from the tomb to tell the disciples. As they're going to report to the disciples, they see Jesus. Uh, it says in Matthew 28 that they touched his feet. Now, some people have made a contradiction or seen a contradiction there between uh, them touching his feet and some translations of the Gospel of John with Mary Magdalene where Jesus says, don't touch me. He doesn't, in fact, say, don't touch me, but don't stay touching me. There's a the verb tense there that says don't. Uh, the same way Jesus uh, did not cling to his rights as God in Philippians chapter 2 is this, is this verb here that you can touch me, but don't stay touching me because I'm not staying here. Now, you don't embrace me and, 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 and hold on to me because I still have to ascend to the Father. That's what Jesus says to Mary. He doesn't say don't touch me. So there's no contradiction between them touching his feet and others touching him as, as Thomas and the disciples do in the upper room and, and Mary touching him there in the garden tomb. Uh, that also goes to tell us that this is not a hallucination. They are she's touching something. These ladies are touching something. The disciples are touching something. It's not a hallucination. It's also not merely spiritual. The gospel writers want us to understand that Jesus physically and literally rose from the dead. Now, you, now of course, we say, well, of course he did. Uh, but there are liberal Christians who would argue that, you know, even if Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically, there's still a spiritual truth there. And so uh, if you ever just want to have some fun and maybe get mad, I don't know, sometimes y'all want to punch my computer screen, uh, just, just go watch various churches' Easter services, live services on YouTube. Just look that up, Easter services, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, just take your pick and just kind of see, just kind of hear how they talk about the resurrection. You know, st start with us, <laughs> All, the whole service is now on there, start with us, Physical, literal, bodily resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead, and we will too. And then go find some others who say, well, Jesus' uh, resurrection represents a new beginning. You know, it represents new life. It represents turning over a new leaf and becoming a new person. And it might represent those things. But what, that's where some of those people stop, though. That it's just an example. It's just a symbol. Because it doesn't really matter if he rose from the dead physically or not. And many of them, in fact, believe that he did not. Um, so there's something that has to be argued about the physical nature of the resurrection. And when these women touch Jesus' feet and Mary holds on to him and Peter touches him and the disciples touch him and, and Thomas touches his, his nail prints and his hands and his side, um, that tells us that this is not a hallucination. 
and it is a real physical body. A detail included only in Luke 24, and um, interestingly enough, only comes up again in 1 Corinthians. Not a gospel, uh, but Paul writing about Jesus' appearance. And you remember that part in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says this is the gospel that Jesus, uh, the Lord Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. You remember that part after that? Then he appeared to the twelve, and he appeared to James, and he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then he appeared to 500 brothers at once, Paul says. Uh, Paul's recounting these eyewitness accounts. In fact, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15, Many of these people are still alive to this day, the 500. You can go find them and ask them if they saw Jesus. They all saw Jesus together. And he includes that detail that Luke includes, that somewhere in all these appearances, Jesus appeared to Peter personally. And again, like the appearance to Mary Magdalene, there's something theological and personal going on here with this appearance to Peter. Where did we leave Peter off at on Thursday night and Friday morning, having denied Jesus three times, remember? After having said, I'll die for you, Jesus said, will you really? Peter, I tell you, before the rooster crows three times, you will de- or before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you know me. Sure enough, it happens. Peter sees Jesus eye to eye, and he feels his guilt and his remorse, and he repents of this. So it's telling then that Jesus specifically appears to Peter. There are little details given in Luke's account. In fact, it just says he also appeared to Simon. <laughs> That's all you got. And then, and then Paul tells us. But it was important enough that Paul remembers. That's what happened. He appeared to Peter. Now at the end of John's gospel, John 21, we have the fullness of Peter's restoration. We'll get to that in a little while. But there was something theological and personal going on here in Jesus' appearance personally to Peter. Peter, having denied him three times, having felt the most guilt and remorse and regret that he had probably ever felt in his lifetime, knowing that his whole statement, I'll die for you, Jesus, turned out to be a lie, Jesus, nevertheless, after his resurrection, personally appears to Peter. We'll get a little more conversation from Peter and Jesus uh, in a different appearance later. Only in Luke's gospel do we see Jesus' appearance to two disciples traveling to Emmaus. Now, when we see the word disciple, we should not think apostles. These are not two of the apostles. These are just two followers of Jesus who had been in Jerusalem during Passover. They might have seen Jesus come in on the donkey. They might have seen him... uh, tried and arrested they might have seen him crucified and they report to Jesus who they don't recognize they're 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 traveling back to Emmaus maybe their hometown they're sorrowful they're sad and Jesus suddenly out of nowhere appears next to them and is walking with them and Jesus knowing everything that happened I mean it happened to him right he he asked these two disciples what are you talking about he knows what they're talking about. He knows what have ha- what's happened. They don't recognize Jesus. And they say, man, are you crazy? Haven't you heard what has happened in the last three days? Jesus was a mighty prophet, a mighty teacher, attested to men by God through miracles and signs and wonders. Yet our chief priests, they killed him. They crucified him. He's buried. And they even say, even this morning, some of the women say that they've seen him. 
but yet they're sad, they're despondent, they're in despair, and they're going home. And here's Jesus standing right next to them, and they don't understand who he is, they don't recognize him. Until they get home, Jesus stays with them, he eats with them. It says Jesus began with Moses. Now how long Jesus preached, I don't know, but I'll bet you wouldn't complain about Jesus preaching to you all day, would you? You complain about me preaching, but you won't complain about Jesus preaching all day. No, they said, didn't, didn't our hearts burn when, when he preached, when he told us who he was, starting with Moses and all the way through the Old Testament, he told us who he was. And it was only in the breaking of bread that they recognized Jesus. And as soon as they recognized him, he vanished from their sight. But they had no doubt who it was at that point, who they had seen. His teaching, his words. I don't know if there's anything there about the Last Supper and the breaking of bread and, and because these two disciples probably weren't there at the Last Supper. Uh, but either way, maybe they were there at the feeding of the 5,000 and something in the gesture, something in the way Jesus broke the bread and suddenly it was, it was evident to them who this was. Again, it could have been something spiritual that God lifted the scales from their eyes as he did from Paul You know, when he was blind and he recognized who Jesus was. I don't know. They recognize who Jesus was, he disappears, but they are without a doubt now that Jesus is raised from the dead. Later, Jesus appears to his followers in the upper room, the first time without Thomas present. Uh, look here in, in John 20, I think you're already in John, right? John 20, verse 19. On the, the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is Sunday night, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them. And said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, uh, it is withheld. So here's this first appearance of Jesus to all of his disciples, the apostles at once, minus one, minus Thomas. John tells us the disciples were hiding, they were locked in the upper room for fear of the Jews, they were fearful. They were unsure of what's coming next. I couldn't imagine what's going on in their heads. They devoted, you know, three years of their lives to this guy, and now he's gone, he's dead, and they think they're next. So how fitting is it that when Jesus appears to them, the first thing he speaks to them is peace. Peace be with you. In some churches, uh, we have our greeting time, and I love our greeting time. I don't know if you've ever been in a church where they do what's called the passing of the peace, where instead of just shaking hands and yelling at each other, uh, you actually say, you know, peace be with you, and who knows what you say back, and also with you. And that's just not something they made up. You know, we're like, no, that's just so Catholic. It's not Catholic, it's ancient. Jesus said this, this stuff. He said, peace be with you. And so it's fitting that we greet each other in the church that way. Peace be with you and also with you. Why? Because in all of life's turmoil and all of life's uncertainty and all of life's doom and gloom and the bad news, Jesus shows up and he says, peace be with you. 
and we extend that same greeting to each other. That's where that, that comes from. Jesus says, peace, my peace, I give to you. Reminding them of what he said in the upper room to them. The disciples presumably are able to touch Jesus. We'll see that one disciple touches him later. Luke says that Jesus eats with them. This is no ghost, Jesus says. I'm no spirit. You're not seeing things. All of you at once, for that matter. Mass hallucination all at the same time. That would take some, some kind of high-tech drugs to make that happen, for them all to see the same thing the same way at the same time. But they all see this, and they all touch Jesus. And this is John's description of the commission here. As he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. He says, Even as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Now, I don't think Jesus breathing on them in this moment is the actual reception of the Holy Spirit. I think this is a prophetic act, a prophetic sign of what is to come on the day of Pentecost. Because Jesus says in Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you to be my witnesses. So if you were with us for our talks on the charismatic gifts and sort of the history of Pentecostalism, uh, this is one of those proof texts where they may go to say the disciples received the Holy Spirit in John. They received the, the Holy Spirit already. And so they needed this second thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit later. That's Pentecostal doctrine. Um, that's fine, and that might be there. I don't think that's there. I think what Jesus is doing is a sign, a symbol of what Pentecost will bring to them when he breathes on them and gives them this commission to go in his name. So we know Thomas isn't there because in verse 24... It says, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples are all too eager, of course, to tell him, we have seen the Lord. He came. Where were you? We were all here. He appeared. We saw him. We touched him. What does Thomas say? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, whole week, Jesus makes Thomas, poor Thomas, wait. Disciples were inside again. Same situation. Thomas was with them this time, though. Jesus came and stood among them again. Same scenario. And what does he say again? Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So this is another appearance to the eleven, one week later, but now Thomas is present. We have to wonder. Now, I guess we don't have to wonder. We must say Jesus intentionally left Thomas out the first time. I mean, Jesus is not, not, he's not playing fast and loose with his uh, omniscience here. He understands Thomas wasn't there when he showed up the first time. It wasn't that he came, said, oh, Thomas isn't here. I'll come back in one week and maybe Thomas will be here. No, he knows Thomas wasn't going to be there. He knew that. And he went specifically when Thomas wasn't there. So it also goes to say that he intentionally includes Thomas the second time. And this exchange between Thomas and Jesus may just show us why he waited. Why Thomas had to not be there one time and be there the second time. Because there's a lesson here, not just for Thomas, but there's a lesson for all of us. 
What does Thomas express here? Well, he expresses the same thing that all the other disciples, although they don't get the nickname of Doubting Peter or Doubting James or Doubting John, they would have doubted too. Don't you think if Peter had not been in the room or some other disciple had not been in the room and Jesus appeared and they told him later, they would say, nah, I will not believe unless I see, unless I touch. Thomas just gets the the raw end of the, the deal here called Doubting Thomas. But in his unbelief, in his doubting, when Jesus appears this second time, what does he say to Thomas's doubting and Thomas's unbelief? Does he scold him? Does he reprimand him? Does he call him a fool? Now he appears, and with the same greeting he gave the eleven the first time, he gives the same greeting again. Thomas and all the rest of you, peace be with you. He heard Thomas's words, supernaturally somehow. He heard Thomas say, unless I see with my eyes the nail prints in his hand and the spear in his side, unless I put my fingers in it. It's graphic language Thomas uses. Jesus heard that. Jesus could have been offended by that. And Jesus could have said, you stupid, foolish person. <laughs> Why would you have to see? Why do you have to touch? Where's your belief? Where's your faith, Thomas? But he doesn't. He says, peace be with you. And the first person he turns to is Thomas, holding out his hands. He says, okay, come and touch. Come and see. I don't know if there's, you don't want to make too big of a deal about things that may or may not be there. But it's interesting that Jesus presents his wounds to Thomas, I think. That, that Thomas didn't just want to touch his feet or touch his head or, or just make sure he's real. It had to be the nail prints. It had to be the spear in his side. And it's those things that Jesus presents to him. We have to ask why. As if to say, that's exactly why these are here. Your unbelief, your doubt, your sin. That's why the prints are here, Thomas. Come and see, come and touch. Next, Jesus appears to seven disciples at the Sea of Galilee. Only uh, seven of them go out fishing again. Lots of people have said, well, uh, they're just returning to what they know. You know, they're, they're scared and they're, and they're cowardice. They're just returning to what they know. And hey, maybe that's there, maybe it's not. I think it's more or less um, a theological a bookend. Because where did we first find the disciples? According to Luke's gospel anyway, and Matthew's really, some of the disciples were first called where? Here at the Sea of Galilee, fishing, mending their nets, trying to catch fish. And here we come again to that, that same scene. And then there's a theological bookend that the Gospels are putting here on that. There's a reminder of their original call. What was the original call Jesus gave to the disciples? After the simple one, follow me, what did he say? Come and I will make you fishers of men. You're going to go catch people for the kingdom in my name. And they leave their nets, and they follow Jesus for three years. But now that Jesus is dead, and they may have had these weird, mystical, spiritual experiences a few times, but they've, they've gone back to fishing. 
But there's a purpose here. Jesus shows up on the Sea of Galilee, there where they're fishing again, uh, repeats one of the signs, hey, throw out your nets on the other side of the boat. <laughs> they bring in all the fish, and they suddenly realize it's Jesus. You remember Peter? He throws off all of his clothes and dives in the water, swimming to the shore to try to see Jesus. Um, all of this is showing this, this bookend between their original call to be fishers of men and where they find themselves now, back fishing for fish again, yet Jesus appears once more and says again, uh, follow me. And then we come to the shore on John, uh, in John 21. Let's go to verse 15, John 21, 15. They come to the shore. Jesus has already fixed some breakfast there on the, the, the beach, and they eat breakfast together. And it says in uh, John 21, 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, I've already mentioned Peter's three denials. If you'll notice here, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And this is what many scholars and theologians call Peter's restoration. Not that he had fallen away or apostatized, but there had been this rift in the relationship with Jesus. There was this problem. The last time we saw Peter in a, in a large narrative in the Gospels, he was denying three times that he knew Jesus. And yet here is Jesus, having already appeared to him once, Maybe no conversation had been had there. We don't have one reported. But now we have a conversation. And what's the conversation? The three people that appeared to him or were there with him that night at the, around the temple, around Caiaphas' house, around Annas' house, when they were interviewing and, and trying Jesus, they said to Peter three times, Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And now Jesus asks not just, Simon, you, you know me, right? He doesn't just ask that. What does he ask? Do you love me? A lot of ink has been spilled about the different words Jesus uses for love here. This Greek word means this. and That may or may not be something that's there. I don't think it's there. What's important is that Jesus asked Peter three times. After denying him three times, he asked Peter three times now, do you love me? And Peter makes three confessions. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then he's grieved. Yes, Lord, you know all things. And you know that I love you. We also don't need to miss the three charges that Jesus gives. Do you love me? You know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Three denials, three confessions, three charges. Feed my lambs, lead my sheep, feed my sheep. 
Peter's grand words there in the upper room were dashed in his denial. Lord, I'll die for you. I'll go anywhere with you. Clearly not the case then. But Jesus says now to this rock of the church that that would be fulfilled. Look what he says beginning in verse uh, 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. So poignant that Jesus uses the very words that he used to call the disciples. When he reminds Peter of his calling, you follow me. And though Peter's hopes had been dashed the first time when he did not confess Jesus and he did not die for Jesus... Jesus says, there is coming a time when you will confess me, and you will, in fact, die for me. And history and tradition tell us that Peter was martyred by the Roman Empire. Tradition tells us crucified with his hands stretched, just as Jesus said. Some traditions say, not wanting to die as Jesus died, he requested to be crucified upside down. So Peter, this appearance to Peter... This conversation with Peter as he's restored and he's charged. There's other appearances in Galilee. Uh, Last part of John's gospel and other portions of the gospels. Um, Some say 500 at once on a Galilean hillside. Paul mentions this again in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 7. Not just to the 11, not just to Peter, not just to the women, but to 500 at once. Paul says that Jesus appeared to James, his half-brother. This is interesting because in John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that James, Jesus' half-brother, was not a believer. He did not believe his little brother's claim to be the Messiah. Now, he had rejected Jesus. But later we know him to be James, the leader, the pastor, bishop, elder of the Jerusalem church. And somewhere in there, something had changed. And it's probably this, that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, had appeared to him. We're told that Jesus appears to his disciples on a mountain, presumably in Galilee, as he gives them the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Behold, I am with you even unto the end of the age. So this isn't just one appearance. Or two appearances, though that would have been sufficient. But appearance after appearance after appearance after appearance, 11, 7, 4, 2, 1, 500 at once, the Lord Jesus, resurrected and raised from the dead, appears to people, verifying that his claims about who he was are true. We can't end yet without talking about Jesus' ascension. Jesus rose from the dead, but he also ascended to the right hand of the Father. Luke is the only gospel writer to give us an account of this. In Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verses 50 through 52, uh, there's a brief account that he ascended into the clouds. But when Luke comes back in Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, in fact, just turn over one page from John's gospel, and let's see this in Acts 1, starting in verse 9. 
When he had said these things, when he had said what things? You'll receive power, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Why did Jesus have to ascend? We need to ask that question because it's the same reason the stone was rolled away from the door. There's nothing that kept Jesus in the tomb. And the stone did not need to be moved for Jesus to be able to come out and rise from the dead. Likewise, Jesus did not need to transport to heaven in this way. I mean, we all know by now, and they understood then, heaven is not literally up there in the clouds. So Jesus ascending up had nothing to do with this directional nature of where heaven was. Why then did Jesus have to visually go up? Well, number one is his exaltation. It's a sign of his exaltation, him being lifted up and raised up. His victory and his power over the earth, over sin and death and hell. Hebrews chapter 4 uses this phrase, passed through the heavens. There had to be this visual of Jesus going just as the high priest in the Old Testament would disappear behind the veil as he went into the Holy of Holies, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus now, our great high priest, has gone into the real Holy of Holies, not the one made with hands in some tent or some temple, but the Holy of Holies that is at the Father's right hand. And just as the high priest disappeared with, behind that veil, Jesus passed through the heavens, passing through that veil to the presence of his Father to intercede for us, going to sit at the Father's right hand. So there's a visual theological point to the ascension. It's also a prophetic event. How is it a prophetic event? Well, Luke tells us in both accounts that he was taken up into the clouds. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26 to the Sanhedrin when they asked him, are you the Christ? Would you just tell us, are you the Christ? He said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory. He was quoting from Daniel chapter 7 of the Ancient of Days who gives rule and dominion to this Son of Man who in Daniel's vision is coming on the clouds of glory. Jesus identifies himself as that very Son of Man to whom the Ancient of Days, his Father, has given him dominion and glory and rulership over all things. And here, in this very visual way, we see that verified. Jesus going into the clouds, and it's prophetic because the angels say the same way you saw him go is the same way he's going to come. Literally, with the clouds of heaven. Let's talk very briefly about the history of Jesus' bodily resurrection and some of the, the chief arguments for it. Number one, the disciples all died a martyr's death. Except for John, the beloved disciple, even he was exiled to Patmos and probably died not very rich or uh, in, in luxurious lifestyle, but all the apostles apart from him died a martyr's death. And we must ask, would they die for a lie? You might convince one person, maybe, 
a foolish, naive person to die for something they knew was untrue if it meant that their name would live on in glory forever. You might be able to convince one person to do that. We're talking about 11 people. Beyond that, all of the early church who gave themselves for Christ. It seems to indicate that this was not a lie. It couldn't have been the wrong tomb that they went to, as some have said, because the Sanhedrin could have easily went and said, no, 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 this is Jesus' tomb. This is where he is. Go in and you'll find him there. You know, the swooning and the fainting theories that Jesus didn't really die, but he just you know, passed out from loss of blood and appeared dead. Uh, just think about how ridiculous that is, that three days later, with all the wounds and all the bleeding, in a tomb for three days, that he would have been able to get up and walk out as if nothing happened. Mass hallucinations? Don't think so, because we have 500 people seeing him at once. 11 people seeing him at once, three people, four people seeing him at once. Again, all seeing the same thing at the same time in the same way. If you want some more arguments, you can look there in the book, pages 156 through 157. It's a lot of that same stuff I just said, uh, but 156 through 157 has, has four or five other arguments you can look through in your own time. To close, let's just ask what this means for you. Number one, Jesus' resurrection establishes our, this is a good word, just hang on to this one here, eschatological hope. <laughs> eschatological, it's there in the thing, isn't it? Did I type it for you? Eschatological. It just means end times, okay? The last things. Jesus' resurrection establishes your hope in life and in death. That because Jesus was raised from the dead, we talked about this all through our Heaven series, because Jesus was raised from the dead bodily and physically, you also in him will be raised physically and bodily in the last day. Jesus' resurrection vindicates the Christian worldview. In other words, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then he is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, then he is God, and he makes the rules. So if he is who he says he is, because he rose from the dead, you better obey him and trust him. And so when Christians say, the Bible says, or Jesus said, it is not our opinion or just our worldview. It is a worldview based in the fact that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is who he says he is. He rose from the dead to prove it. And you can trust him and you can obey him. Jesus' resurrection was a conquest over the forces of darkness. He defeated death. He defeated sin. Defeated Satan. Absorbed all the wrath of God for us. So that none is left for us. Only life and glory. Lastly, Jesus' resurrection motivates us for kingdom advancement. This is why he tells his disciples when they see him there on the mountain, the first part of the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am victorious. I am triumphant. Therefore, go. Because I am triumphant. Because I am victorious. Now, therefore, because of that, Go and proclaim that triumph to the world and make disciples of all nations. So I hope this uh, study through Jesus' final week has kind of opened up some, 
some stuff for you, and especially as we went through Holy Week together, kind of in the middle of it. Maybe uh, we approached those events with a, a fresh lens, uh, a new lens of worship and adoration for Jesus. Um, as we go through to next week, be sure to get some questions to me. Maybe something we talked about in our Heaven series or, or something we talked about through this series. Or just whatever's been on your mind lately. It doesn't have to be connected to anything I'm preaching or teaching. Just something you're interested in. I'm going to try to get you an answer. I need those questions probably by the weekend, though. So if you can get them to me by Sunday or so, that'll give me some time to think and prepare for next Wednesday. And uh, we'll gather for that time next week. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who gave himself for us. Uh, more than that, he rose from the dead for us. And now we know that his death was accepted, the payment was paid, the job was done, and now he rules and reigns at your right hand forever and ever. And we thank you that from there you've sent the Holy Spirit, you've given us power to be your witnesses in the world, and I ask that you would help us and empower us and to equip us to be the witnesses we should be to our families, to our loved ones, to our people we work with, to the world around us, to our neighbors. God, help us to take the victory and the triumph that you've won for us in Jesus and to proclaim that to the world as we make disciples in his name. Help us to be fishers of men as we follow him in life and in death. Thank you for this series and thank you for uh, the importance of what Jesus has done for us and reminding us of the importance of what Jesus has done for us. Send us from this place with that hope and that peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.